Hello, and welcome to the Formal Review. Today, we'll be talking about the 2021 film, Spider-Man No Way Home. So sit back, relax, grab your drinks, let's talk about this movie. What's up, y'all, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is Season 4, Episode 23, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. So this episode will be analysis on the newest film in the MCU and where it stands in the series overall, and also where it stands in the Spider-Man series overall. So stay tuned. So I'm going to preface this episode with a big spoiler warning because, in short, I liked it. So go see it, then come back and listen. This episode is going to contain heavy spoilers. There's really no way around it. Sorry about that and the joke. Anyway, I say that all because there's a lot to talk about with this film. And honestly, to not have spoilers is kind of hard to do. So I would just say this again. I liked it. Go see it. Come back and listen. But if you don't care about that, keep listening. Also, I know I talk about this at the end but the data shows that most people don't listen to that part so i want to talk about it here and reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite subscription services i do read those because i do want to grow because these episodes are really for all you listeners out there and i want to keep this entertaining so what do you want to hear do you want to hear games do you want to hear more of the 4k stuff do you want to hear you talk about a certain movie if you want to come on and talk to me about something for you want to debate i'm always open to do stuff like that so you can always reach out to me on social media i always want to grow and improve and just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved so if there's something that you want me to improve on let me know and i will grow as such so let's get back to the movie at hand so sit back relax grab your drinks let's talk about this movie Spider-Man No Way Home is a superhero film based on the Marvel Comics character Spider-Man. It is the sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming from 2017 and Spider-Man Far From Home in 2019. And it is the 27th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, also known as the MCU. And the film is directed by John Watson, written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. And it stars Tom Holland as the titular character alongside Zendaya, Benedict Cumberbatch, Jacob Badalon, John Favreau, and Marisa Tomei. Now the film follows Peter Parker when he asked Dr. Stephen Strange, played by Cumberbatch, to try to make his identity as Spider-Man a secret again with magic following the public revelation from far from home. But this breaks open the multiverse along with supervillains from alternate realities who have fought versions of Peter to come in and enter his universe. Now, in short, this film does have a lot of great things. Probably the best parts of this movie involve Green Goblin. Willem Dafoe really shows how good he is and frankly steals the movie from everyone else. Now, this film has a lot of moving pieces. It has to deal with everything that the MCU has set up in the prior films and on top of that continue the ideas of the multiverse which is complex in in itself. The multiverse is a hypothetical group of multiple universes. Together these universes compromise everything that exists. The entirety of space, time, matter, energy, information, and the physical laws and constants that describe them. Now they're usually also called parallel universes or other universes, alternate universes, or just many worlds. And this has been a hypothesis in cosmology, physics, astronomy, religion, philosophy, music, and all kinds of literature, particularly in science fiction, comic books, and fantasy. Now, these ideas have been around since ancient Greece where atomists proposed that infinite parallel worlds arose from the collision of atoms. Now, today, the scientific community has debated whether any other universes exist outside of our own. Some say it's not a legitimate topic because this idea would corrupt the processes of experimental verification and thus hurt the worldview on, on science and ultimately damage 
avoids the study of fundamental physics. Some argue that it is more philosophical than scientific because it cannot be empirically falsified. Now, one scientist, Paul Steinhardt, argues that no experiment can rule out a theory if the theory provides an explanation for all possible outcomes. Then in 2007, Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg suggested that if the multiverse existed, quote, the hope of finding a rational explanation for the precise values of quark masses and other constants of the standard model that we observe in our Big Bang is doomed, for their values would be ancient of the particular part of the multiverse in which we live, end quote. Now, around 2010, scientists such as Stephen M. Feeney analyzed the Wilkinson microwave anisotropy probe, also known as the WMAP data, and claimed to find evidence suggesting that the universe collided with other universes in the distant past. However, a more analysis of this data and also the Planck satellite did not reveal any statistically significant evidence such of this bubble universe collision. In addition, there was no really gravitational pull noted from any other universes on ours. However, back in 2018, legendary physicist Stephen Hawking stated that our universe may be one out of similar to our own in his final research paper. Prior to his death, his theory resolved this cosmic paradox of his own making and really pointed a way for astronomers to find evidence of the existence of parallel universes. So in the 1980s, Hawking and US physicist James Hartle developed a new idea about the beginning of the universe. This idea solved a difficulty that Einstein had brought up which suggested that the universe began nearly 14 billion years ago, but nothing about how it began. So they used a different theory called quantum mechanics to explain how the universe arose from nothingness. In short, Hartle and Hawking suggested that if we could travel backwards in time toward the beginning of the universe, we would note that quite near what might otherwise be the beginning, time gives no way to space such that at first there's only space and no time. So according to them, the universe has no origin and rather it is singularity in both space and time, pre-Big Bang. However, Hawking did say, quote, the universe has not existed forever. Rather, the universe and time itself had a beginning in the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago, end quote. Now, I know that's very confusing and as such, it essentially tied up one loose end, but it created another or an infinite number of them, if you will. Now, this led to physicists analyzing the idea that the Big Bang would create not just one universe, but this endless supply. And basically, this theory stated that some of the universe would be similar to our own, but then some would be subtly different, such as the Earth where no dinosaurs were wiped out, and then some would be completely different, perhaps with no Earths or no stars and galaxies and completely different laws of physics. Now, all of this is very, very out there, but the mathematical equations in this theory make such scenarios theoretically possible. Now, the issue with this idea is that if there are infinite types of universes with infinite variations in their laws and physics, then the theory cannot predict what kind of universe we should find ourselves in. Now, it, this essentially states that the multiverse emerged randomly, and we can't say much more than that. So this new paper indicated that there could only be universes that have the same laws and physics of our own. So this conjecture means that the, our universe is typical, and so that any observations we make from our own viewpoint will be meaningful in the development of how other universes emerged. Now, as 
intensely mind-bending that all of those ideas are, it essentially helps physicists to develop a more complete theory of how the universe came into being. So all of that is extremely confusing, obviously, and it requires a lot of understanding and mind power to take in. So on top of that, this film has to set up the rest of the films that the MCU has planned going forward, while also balancing what's going on in the Sony-verse. And frankly, for the most part, this film does a good job at balancing it all. It was also great to see the iconic Spider-Man films come back from the other movies. This film does show that Marvel knows what they're doing. They know that there are fans of all of these villains, and frankly, even the ones that I wasn't a fan of, I like them more in this film. Jamie Foxx's Electro, to be specific. Now, as someone who grew up on the Maguire franchise and does really, really like Garfield's interpretation of the character, it was really nice to see them find redemption by being essentially grandfathered into the MCU. And it was really cool to see Holland's version find an ability to be a leader of this group and teach the other Peters how to really work it together as a team. Now, there are so many Easter eggs in this film hinting toward their eventual coming in and lots of Easter eggs that call back to previous films, but I'm not going to go into all of them here because there's so many that I could spend an entire episode to do that and I really don't want to waste your time on that. But if you've watched any of the prior films, they're pretty obvious. I like the nod to a potential mind with Morales coming in and now this film picks up immediately after the incidents of Far From Home with Peter's identity being out there and he has to live with the repercussions of this newfound quote-unquote fame. However, his life and his friend's life have really been ruined for the most part, especially in public opinion and as such their applications to MIT are rejected. Now they can't even get into any colleges at all and even though it's very clear that they didn't do anything wrong. They've just been cancelled. So, as such, Peter goes to Doctor Strange in order to erase this knowledge from everyone's minds so that his friends can live a fairly normal life. However, during the spell, he constantly interrupts and this shatters the multiverse and it brings across people from the other franchises that know Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Now, they do change up some of the scenes from the trailers, which was really great to see. That actually was somewhat surprising and I really enjoyed that given the fact that a lot of trailers give away too many things a lot of the time, so it was nice to see that they they know that and they actually changes that. Now after all the villains are brought across, Peter ends up going to meet up with this MIT staff member to convince her to let his friends in. Before he has a chance to fully plead his case, Dr. Octopus attacks and Peter ends up going head-headed with him. Now during this battle, Ock actually then slices off Peter's tie and suit, which is somewhat of a callback to Spider-Man 3, which McGuire's version had the exact same thing happen and then Peter manages to overtake the tentacles with the Nanotech overriding them and subdue Otto. Then the Green Goblin arrives, but before they are able to fight, he is transported with Otto to the Sanctorum, where Peter finds the Lizard imprisoned because the Lizard had a run-in with Strange. Now from this point on, Strange wants him to recapture all the villains with help from Ned and MJ, and he finds Electro in the woods, and then Sandman helps him out, but then they end up being transported into the Sanctorum as well in prison, which sets up Sandman's viewpoint of Spider-Man is not being trustworthy. Peter then receives a call from May and Osborne is with her. Prior to seeing this, we see Osborne talking to his mask like he did in the first Raimi film, but he ends up smashing it in a very similar way that 
Toby dumped his costume behind in Spider-Man 2. Now this gives way for a really good comic book accurate costume of the Green Goblin, which I really, really loved. I love seeing the purple outfit costume. It was really kind of cool to see that again. After finding him at the shelter, Peter wants to then help these people and become good again and cured in a way. And because he realizes that once they return to their own universes, they're going to die. So he ends up stealing the spell, which is contained in this cube known as something I can't pronounce from Doctor Strange. And this gives way to a fairly awesome chase scene in the mirror dimension, which Peter bests Strange by applying basic geometry and leaves him trapped there. Peter then starts to save this villains by starting with replacing the broken inhibitor chip in Otto's neck and this allows him to recontrol of his mind. He then develops a device that can draw energy from Electro along with Norman. They start to try to remove the goblin. However, as it goes, the goblin returns and he then convinces Electro to destroy the device so that they can essentially become gods in this reality. Then Electro and the lizard and Sandman leave. So this lead goblin to go head to head with Peter and this ultimately leads to the death of May Parker and I'll get it more into that in a little bit. Now Crosstown Ned and MJ really want to find Peter because they don't know where he is and then they open this portal and bring in the two prior Spider-Man of Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. Now honestly it was great seeing them again and Garfield especially knocks it out of the park pretty much throughout the entire movie. And they meet up with Peter and they have some really great scenes that touch on Gwen, Uncle Ben and their web shooters. Now in the climactic scene Peter almost kills Goblin for what he did to May, but at the last second, he stopped from ramming the glider into the goblin by Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Tobey is then stabbed, which they try to play off as this weird, tragic thing, but then it kind of just gets put on for a joke and kind of makes it a pointless little moment. But then Andrew tosses the cure to him, who to Tom, and he injects him and then cures Osborne of his goblin side. Now, what really is great about these interactions between them is that Tobey brings this wisdom to the screen because he does feel older and even though arguably within the same age range when they started he has this more traumatic story because he got to a point of being willing to kill somebody for vengeance which dials back into what Tom Holland's version is going through and it's similarly with Garfield's version is that he has a lot of knowledge when it comes to dealing with a romance relationship and shows how that can be very traumatic if not done well and and really, Garfield redeems himself when he saves MJ from falling, which is something that he couldn't do with Gwen in his universe. And frankly, that's what's really powerful about these characters is that they have this backstory that we know of because of the prior films. And that's what really, really adds more emotion that may or may not be dived into that much in these films, but it really helps a lot, especially when you know that. Now, through this emotional journey of a film, Peter learns many things from how to deal with vengeance and that if he saves one person he saves everyone and thus he stopped a lot of heartbreak from happening in these other realities he eventually has this very tearful goodbye with mj and promises that he'll come tell both her and ned then dr strange casts his spell to make everyone forget that peter parker existed now in the final sequence peter approaches mj and it's very obvious that he wants to tell her everything but then ned comes in and her and ned start talking about mit and peter starts to have these second thoughts. He notices that MJ has the Black Dahlia necklace that he bought for her in Far From Home, but she doesn't remember who he is. And he realizes in this moment that Ned and her seem happier and being close to him would only put them in danger. And everything that he has 
seen up to this moment with Aunt May dying and also what Andrew Garfield's experience with Gwen went through. He sees all of this, but he doesn't hear the conversation between McGuire and Garfield's character about it. it's not easy, but they make it work. That's why he really doesn't try to tell her what happened. And this is a motif that was really brought up at the end of also the first Raimi film where Peter had to turn away from the person that he loved the most in order to spare them from any pain that his lifestyle would cause them. It's a very devastating story and it, this film's version of that is arguably one of the most painful endings in an MCU film. Now to then further show how painful it is, Pei then goes to May's grave where he sees Happy who doesn't recognize him either. In this moment, Happy alludes to Tony and May's death and what they meant to him, which then pushes Peter to really go on even though he's at his lowest point. And this is a really a bittersweet ending that really shows Peter being inspired by the ones he loves and though everyone that's still around has forgotten what he meant to them, he hasn't forgotten what they meant to him. And that's what really makes this story really developed well. But what's really great about this ending is that it really does show how much Peter sacrifices for to be this hero. Now this obviously opens up to a lot into the future and I don't think that they're going to cut off MJ completely at this point because yeah she may not remember it but I feel that there would be an easy way to come around with that with Doctor Strange especially with the spell that they try to give exceptions which I also don't know why they couldn't have done those exceptions in that spell because they did the exceptions the first time since they knew that they could have just said I want everyone to forget except A, B, and C people. I feel like that would have been an easy way but whatever that's a small nitpick. Either way though as enjoyable as this film was it was nowhere near perfect. The love behind this film is fantastic but it has a lot of issues especially when it comes to its writing and its direction. The plot at least for the first two-thirds of the film feels very low stakes and I, this has to do with the Mysterio cliffhanger while also trying to set up the multiverse storyline so some things don't really get the proper time and develop that they require because the story's main plot is that reality is crumbling around them and they decide to laugh at someone's name. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Dr. Otto Octavius. <laughs> Wait, no, seriously, what's your actual name? And frankly, this is one of the biggest issues with the film, even with its plot coming back around to normalize stakes in the final third bit of the film. Honestly, this writing is fairly lazy and shows another problem with the multiverse story as a whole. And I mean this across any media, not just so much with the MCU, as across anything. Because it's a crutch that comic books and films based on them fall back on when recasting happens and whatnot and it can really take away from character deaths because they can simply come back with that's another universe story which is exactly what they're doing here and that's not great story writing that's lazy when it comes to Watts's directions it's really dependent on how one views him as a director from the prior two films now not much has changed between those two and this one when it comes to his direction if you liked it before you'll like it here and vice versa in five years he's made three films and honestly No Way Home is his best attempt but he still has very big weaknesses when it comes to the Spider-Man character. Not only does he eliminate some of the key Spider-Man character qualities in the prior two films, he then adds those things that he eliminated back in this one. And to be specific I'm talking about the with great power comes great responsibility line. Now this is one of the most important qualities in the Spider-Man character and not having it or even Uncle Ben barely mentioned in the prior two films was a huge disservice to the character. Now a lot of people have said that it's not 
needed in this version of Spider-Man. And we know that about him. We don't need to see that part of the origin story again. And I understand that after the two other Spider-Man films, it may be true. But then why did they effectively add that back into this character in this film? Now, don't get me wrong. I am glad that they did, but it took three movies for them to do so. Going off of that, May's death was absolutely tragic. And that scene was very powerful, both from the story and acting perspective. Her death felt this way because of the relationship that Peter had with her that was shown over the past two films. However, the prior films did very little with May outside of making her an object of affection for jokes. It's so hard for me to believe that she's someone's aunt. And so the relationship was very similar to the relatively speaking quick, and I don't really mean it was quick, but relatively speaking quick deaths of Uncle Ben in the prior two iterations. However, my main point of bringing this up is that this shows the importance of scenes like this to the Spider-Man story. Now fans can say all they want that they don't need it, but for a character and the key points of that character, it's not about what the fans want. It's about the true aspects of the character. Peter's emotions after this scenes and thus his feelings toward Osborne is what makes him such a relatable character. Because superheroes are meant to inspire. They're meant to represent someone that we are not or someone that can do something that we cannot. They essentially provide this escape into a world where someone is there for us when the police, the medical or social institutions have let us down. Now, no matter the year, there's someone who feels sad or angry because of something that has happened. It could be the government has not done what they wanted. It could be the murder of someone because of their race. It could be someone who was betrayed by someone who thought was a close friend. We live in a world where there are a lot of problems, no matter your views. And this is why superheroes are there. Clinical psychologist Robin Rosenberg wrote up superheroes help people find meaning in loss and trauma while also discovering our strengths and then using them for good purpose. She goes into three types of life altering experiences that a lot of people relate to. The first one is trauma. That's similar to what Bruce Wayne goes through with his Batman character. The second is more of destiny, which is more similar to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, Rosenberg's last experience is similar to what the Spider-Man character goes through in the comics. He initially gets his powers. He uses it for selfish reasons until his uncle is killed. Now, this is similar to the first, but instead of the trauma defining the hero, it's the choice that matters. So no matter whether your Spider-Man is Peter Parker, Miles Morales, or Peter Porker, this choice exists. Now in this film, Peter could choose the selfish route and be with Ned and MJ, but he chooses to eliminate their memory because it'll save the multiverse. One person sacrificing something makes everyone else's life better. Now the choice to do what is right versus what is easy is a choice that we as humans make every day. And Rosenberg states that these superheroes basically inspire us and provide models of coping with adversity, finding meaning in loss and trauma and discovering these strengths and using them for good purpose. And we want to attach ourselves to these characters. We want to see them in ourselves. We want to see those with fantastical abilities that are still imperfect and relatable. And we're comforted by seeing them struggle with ordinary problems. And as such, they'll still do the right thing in the end. And this is what ultimately makes the ending of this film tragic because Spider-Man is now alone in the world. Yes, he can always reach out to any of the Avengers, but they'll only know him as Spider-Man and not Peter Parker. And it's really a devastating 
devastating prospect that this teenager who now has to basically reinvent his life, he has to start with taking his GED, which obviously he'll pass because he's a genius. Having said that though, he has to essentially reinvent who he is as a person, but he's completely alone in this world after losing his last living relative and his closest friends because of the amnesia spell. And this ending is very similar to, like I said, the Raimi Spider-Man films that end with a tragic but unknown future. Even the third film had this, frankly, and so did the second film in The Amazing Spider-Man. And this is a strength and a weakness for this film because it brought back what makes a good film, but it also admits the problems with the first two will. It really shows this lack of identity for Watts as a director. He does well in film in the sense of he's able to produce a decently made film, and he does even better in this film, but mostly because he's riding on the coattails of Raimi. He is a competent director for the MCU, but does nothing unique about them. He honestly just takes the same bag of tricks and then packages them differently. And additionally, though it was cool to see, the final swing is very unremarkable and frankly boring, which honestly describes most of the swinging scenes in his movies. And this is a big problem because one of the things that made the prior iterations of the character was their swinging movements. Watts doesn't really make Spider-Man swinging part of his story. As one who had watched all of the Spider-Man films prior to seeing this film, this was immensely obvious. Now, if one did not do this and or does not care about the other films, it's still fairly noticeable thanks to 40X. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a ride for a movie in a way that really tries to move with the movements of the film, adding different practical effects with like rain and snow and smells and whatnot. Now, in this film, there were some really cool rain effects and smoke effects that really do show how 40X works. However, from a motion standpoint, the most of it was during the mirror dimension chase scene and for a film that's supposed to be based around a character who swings a lot there was very little another unclear part of the script and this may be a nitpick was the whole curing the villains thing specifically it doesn't make sense how that's supposed to save their lives in their universe because there's some unsure bit of at what point in their story they came to Tom Holland's universe because they came after dying so they're gonna go back to the moments right before they die when they know to stop fighting Spider-Man or are they all gonna go back to the same time but just resurrected some of them are in the same timeline so how will that all work and then they're making timeline changes and isn't that a bad thing and then it's also a bit confusing on the point of wearing the suit if all your nemesis still manage to know your identity but then they don't know that spider-man is peter parker in those other universes but then how are they cured so it's just a lot of unsure things and this is one of the problems that really doesn't make sense and they don't really do anything to explain this this is essentially one of the grandfather paradoxes of time travel in a way but it's different from what was going on in endgame because endgame they tried to explain that with this one they didn't really explain that at all so that is kind of a big problem with this, but frankly, most people are probably gonna be willing to let that slide because it's the multiverse and they can have do-overs. I'm not really sure, but it's just a small issue. And this film honestly has a lot of fan service and most of which do work. However, there are clearly some there just for the cool factor. While I personally am a huge Daredevil fan, Matt Murdock's appearance in this film didn't really feel justified or really thought out. When he stops the brick and says that I'm a good lawyer, 
player as the reasoning for that. How is that really believable to anyone in the room that's there who has dealt with the Hulk, Thor, Cap, Black Panther, all of the Avengers really? They're just gonna just accept that? I'm sorry, that's just not believable. And then this goes into the whole idea of how much of those TV shows are canon now or are those just in other universe? This is all explanation that's gonna have to be retconned. I'm not really sure. But even with these issues the mcu really has done a really fine job at establishing peter as this kid with a hero's heart and again shows him making one of the mcu's most impactful sacrifices at the end of the day though this film has a lot of nostalgia and fan service that seems almost a love letter from the mcu to just spider-man fans in general frankly this is the best mcu spider-man film tom holland delivers his best performance as the character and his spider-man is more fleshed out in a way that really has me excited for the next film and knowing that this outcome will definitely make the prior two films better on rewatch. Having said that though, that is essentially retconning them to be better than them actually being better. Now overall, I really did like this film, but I'm not someone who just wants to say that everything is amazing. I did feel that the first two thirds of the film were pretty choppy and it was all over the place at sometimes. However, when the villains show up, especially when Willem Dafoe shows up, the movie does really get fantastic and it really just gets better and better with every scene. The absolutely heartbreaking ending really shows the sacrifice of what it means to come with a hero. This, unfortunately though, doesn't really break the mold in any way that the Raimi films did already. Now in Spider-Man film rankings, it is number four for me behind Raimi's first two films and Into the Spider-Verse. Now in the MCU as a whole, not including the TV shows, it's number seven for me but including the TV shows, it's number nine. I'd say if the first two thirds of the film weren't as messy, it would have been the TV shows and stayed at number seven, or maybe even moved up higher. My rating for this film would be a four out of five, which is really good, but with problems. So what did you think of the film? And where does it rank in your Spider-Man films and also the MCU as a whole? Let me know, hit me up on social media. The formal review is on Facebook, Twitter, and the gram, and also YouTube. The handle's all the same, it's at the formal review. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, I thank you very much for supporting me in that way. For anyone who wants to support, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash formal review and click support this podcast and any donation is appreciated. Thank you all again for tuning in. And until next time, Wash your hands, get vaccinated, or if not, wear a mask. And I'll see you at the movies. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Formal Review. Cheers, and we'll see you next time.